Uh, welcome back to our uh, teaching series we're calling just simply one word, lead. And uh, over these six weeks, what we've been doing over these six Sundays, we're looking at six transitions or six shifts that you have to make if you're going to be successful in leading yourself. Um, if you're going to lead well, if you're going to be a good leader, you have to first lead yourself. And you are the most difficult person for you to lead. And let me just pause because I realize some of you are going to be tempted to click out right now. Even if you're on Facebook, you're in 10 seconds already. And you're like, this is not for me. Pastor, I'm not a leader. I don't want to be a leader. I don't, have the res- I don't want to take on the responsibility for being a leader I'm not leadership material. I don't have a leadership title. This isn't for me. Not a leader. Jesus would say to you, you're wrong. Jesus would say to you that if he created you, then he created you with purpose. And purpose that he has for all of his followers, and he wants us all to be his followers, is summed up in his great commission when he said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go make disciples. Go teach people about me. Go teach people to obey me. In the same way that I've led you, now I'm sending you to go lead other people. He says very clearly, you go and lead. So what that means is you and I were made by God, created by God, to be leaders, He's given each of us the assignment and also the abilities and the resources to lead people to know him, to lead people to know how to obey him, to lead people by baptizing them. That's central to what it means to be and make disciples. You can't be and make disciples without being able to lead yourself and lead other people. And our mission at Echo is to be and make disciples. So if right now... This next few minutes in my life looks like me making disciples. The best thing I can do is help you learn how to lead yourself. To be a follower who has followers. To follow Jesus simultaneously while other people are following you. So that's what we've been getting after. So how do you learn to lead yourself better? Because you have no business leading someone else if you can't lead yourself. So how do you learn to lead yourself We've mentioned a few things. It involves some transitions. You have to make some shifts from the way you were thinking or living or being into a new way. We've talked about you have to shift from just saying, I'm trying, to saying, I'm training. You have to make a shift from just being a hearer, but not also a doer, but to being a hearer and a doer. And today, we're going to talk about making a shift from a life attitude of living with this conviction that says, that's not enough to becoming a person where you're able to put up a boundary in your life that says, you know what, that's enough. We're going to talk about that this morning. Um, I'm making a decision right now to cut this message completely in half. So half of this, point number two, will be for leftovers tomorrow morning, okay? I'm going to give that to you tomorrow. I'm just going to teach point one today, and I'm even going to leave those blanks blank. So those of you that have OCD issues like your pastor will be forced to tune in tomorrow to get the fill-ins to your blanks, okay? Okay. Two passages of Scripture I want to share with you primarily, 
and then there's some supplemental ones that I'll bring alongside as we go this morning. The first one we'll unpack today. The second one I'll unpack tomorrow. I'll read them both to you right now. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. This is in the form of a letter written by the Apostle Paul while he is imprisoned and feeling especially weakened physically because of the conditions there, but also at the same time feeling especially full because of a secret that he has discovered. Let's read about it together. I'll read it to you this morning. How I praise the Lord that you're concerned about me again. I know that you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or how to live with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation. And if the next part of the sentence doesn't appeal to you to hear, there's something inside of you that is dead. If someone says, I've got the secret of how to live in every situation, we'd all pony up 1995 to hear it. He gives it away for free. Whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Even so, you've done well to share with me in my present difficulty. So I'll show you in a moment. Paul has already learned the difference between saying that's not enough and therefore I'm not enough to saying that's enough and I have everything. Now let's look practically If you get to that point in your life, what that allows you to do in this second passage, and I'll unpack that tomorrow. Here's a second passage from the Old Testament, talking to uh, owners, talking to landowners. It says, when you harvest the crops of your land, he's talking about income. When you have the ability to go out and, and, you know, work, work your skills to earn, it says, don't harvest the grain along the edges of your fields and don't pick up what the harvesters drop. It's the same with your grape crop. Don't strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines and don't pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I'm the Lord your God. And a few sentences later, he says, don't make your employees wait until the next day to receive their pay. What's he really saying? When you get to learn to live with that's enough, you're able to make margin in your life to share your extra with people who really need it. That's what he's saying. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Let's refresh real quick. Learning how to lead yourself, this is in your notes, can be expressed in the following simple equation because you know I love math, so I like a good equation. We've been talking about this each week. Hopefully this is becoming familiar to you by now. Self-leadership. Leading yourself requires three things, not two, not four, but three. Conviction plus action plus discipline. If you can get these three things working together properly, The result in your life will be the ability to lead yourself in the area of godliness, or really in anything for that matter. Self-leadership equals conviction. What does conviction mean? Well, let's look at the word conviction. It's those things of which you are convinced. It's those deep core values, and you say, I am convinced that I must dot, dot, dot. Those are your convictions. Now, what we haven't talked about, and what I probably won't talk about because we don't have time, I'm making a big assumption here. I'm making the assumption that your convictions line up with what God says they should be. Because you can also have a faulty conviction in there that you're convinced of. It may not be entirely true, but it's a conviction of your heart. I believe I need to weigh less than 120 pounds. I'm convinced of it. And then you're going to take on actions. And what is an action? An action is simply putting your convictions into motion. 
Okay, conviction is the hearing part. I agree that this is how I should live. But the action is how you put that conviction into motion. And James says if you don't have them working together, it's useless. Your convictions are useless if you don't put them into motion. But sometimes when you're putting convictions and actions into motion, you get to one extreme or the other. You, you're on the highway, and now you're on a rumble strip, and now you're into a guardrail. What keeps your convictions and your actions moving in the right direction? What keeps them in motion? It's discipline. It's those regular rhythms you build into your life to make sure that your convictions are always the right convictions, that your convictions are always carrying with them the right actions, and that those rhythms of keeping you refreshed and energized and on point and rested are all working together. Because sometimes you can have the right convictions and the right actions in mind, but if they're not ongoing, you know, it's not a failure of your plan. It's a failure, failure of discipline. You say, I know I should lose some weight. I know I should get to the gym more. I'm just not doing it. It's not the wrong conviction or the wrong action. There's no discipline. So those three things working together is what we've defined as self-leadership. So today, I want to have us dial in on two competing convictions that war with us inside of our heart. In fact, one level below your heart and what uh, the great revivalist preacher Jonathan Edwards would call your deeper, your deep inner desires. They generally bend in one of two directions. And these two statements are this. I've already said them before. One statement is, that's not enough. The other statement is, that's enough. So we've got, that's not enough, is one of these convictions that comes up in our desires a lot. Another one is, that's enough. And what I want to show you today is that being able to establish a that's not enough fence in your life is the way that you will start to be able to discover how to live with any sense of contentment or fulfillment. It's the only way you'll be able to give away of yourself. It's the only way you can truly bring yourself into a place of being able to lead yourself in an area of conviction and action is if you can put these fences up. Um, uh, a couple decades ago, one decade, one decade ago, uh, over a four-year period, I lost, uh, I lost 70 pounds. I'm happy to report that as of my last doctor visit, I've gained 15 of them back. So uh, great message on discipline there. But uh, about a decade ago, over a four-year period, I lost 70 pounds. You know, you wouldn't know. Most of you didn't know me a decade ago. But people who did know me, when they'd see kind of the before and the after, the one question they always ask me is, how did you do it? And what they're hoping is I gave them some really amazing, inexpensive, silver bullet solution to saying, you know what, I took three pills and I woke up the next morning and 70 pounds was gone. It was amazing. But the truth of the matter was, how did I lose 70 pounds? I had to budget eating and diet and exercise differently than I was doing it before. That's kind of how I did it. Because you see, what got me to the point of being that far overweight was years and years and years of eating whatever I wanted whenever I wanted and as much as I wanted because I love to eat. I love food. I love the Food Network. I love to eat while watching the Food Network. In fact, it's hard not to eat while I'm watching the Food Network, right? And for years and years and years, every time that I would eat ice cream or tasty cakes or hamburgers or french fries or whatever, my taste buds would say, that's not enough. And I'd say, okay, taste buds, let me give you more. They'd say, that's not enough. Let me give you more. 
Then they'd say, okay, let's take a break. Then two hours later, give me more. Okay, whatever you want. Whatever you want, belly, whatever you want, taste buds. For years and years and years and years, my attitude towards food was that's not enough. And then, between the combination of several of my family members being diagnosed with diabetes and a stern talking to from my doctor, the day of reckoning had come for me. If I didn't adjust my budget and learn how to say that's not enough, I was going to that's not enough myself to death. And so I had to learn how to live by saying that's enough. I had to make some exchanges because every single day I was putting my budget and my belt under an enormous amount of pressure because I wasn't saying that's enough. So I finally decided, I say decided, I, I, I guess it was my choice, but it was pretty much an edict given to me from my doctor. I had to take control of my eating habits because I finally had to come to a place where I said, you know what, I love food, but you know what I love more than food? Being alive. Being physically healthy. Eating for me had to move from that's not enough to that's enough. I had to make a trade-off. Indulgent Overeating had to be exchanged for sensible dieting. Thinking about exercising had to be exchanged for actually exercising. I had to give up something I loved, which was eating whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, without reading labels or thinking about it. I had to give up something I loved, which was eating food, for something I loved even more, which was physical health. And here's the application. It's your big idea. The easiest way I can summarize it is this. The big idea is that leading yourself in godliness will often demand giving up something you love for something you love even more. I want you to think about this. If you'll grab hold of this concept, it will change your life. And I'll be honest, I'm trying to help that happen today. Training yourself, leading yourself in being more like Jesus will regularly demand you giving up something you love. And many times something that is absolutely lovable for something you love even more. Today, I will not talk about giving up the things you should hate because I think that's a little more obvious to most people. Yeah, give up, you know, give up all the greasy, fatty food and go eat, you know, lettuce and pine needles and organic air and all that other good stuff that comes along with it. Yeah, we get that. God doesn't have a problem with us eating food. The problem is when we love eating food more than we love our physical health. Here's what St. Augustine says. Let me make this more clear. St. Augustine, old cat, wrote back in the day. St. Augustine says this. The main problem we have is that our loves are disordered. In other words, the main problem we're dealing with is not that we love things we shouldn't love. We love things we should love and that it's okay to love and that God is okay that we love. The problem, Augustine says, is that we have those loves out of priority order. In other words, the thing we should love the most, we love the middlest. The things we should love the least, sometimes we love the most. And the things we should love in the middle, sometimes we love the least or the most. We have our loves disordered and we're heading for chaos when our loves get out of order. 
Let me give you an example. If you love your career more than you love your family, what inevitably is going to happen? Maybe not right away, but what will happen to your family? It will spoil. It will suffer. And what happens if you're loving your career so much and you love it more than your family and your family suffers, how does that eventually impact your career? Sometimes you lose it too. The problem isn't that you love your career. That's okay. But when you love it more than your family, you're headed for disaster. Your loves are disordered. Parents in the house, if you love your children more than you love God, you're headed for trouble because you will suffocate your children with your expectations for them to deliver you a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment that can only be found in God. You will expect them to perform in such a way that it fills up all of this love you have for them, and you cannot be able to tolerate any minute amount of failure in your life. You will suffocate them with your demands. You will suffocate them with your expectations if you love them more than you love God. It's not wrong that we should love our children. The Bible commands it. The problem is when we get our loves out of order. You understand what I'm getting at here? Many times to grow in godliness... The real advanced stuff is not choosing between right and wrong. That's obedience. It's choosing between how I should order my loves. Giving, am I willing to give up something I love, like having extra money in the bank, like extra, whatever it is? Am I willing to give up some luxuries for something I love even more, like being able to help in missions, helping the unjust, leaving margin in my life to be able to give back more? That's really a lot of what stunts our progress or propels us forward in our ability to lead ourselves. So how do you do that? How do you start putting those loves in proper order in your life? Um, give you give you two th- solutions this morning. The ability to say that's enough doesn't require a magic solution. And I'll talk about this more tomorrow. There's so many people that think that what the Bible teaches about giving of our finances is magic. If I just put 10% in the offering, there's going to be a floodgate open and my mailbox is going to be filled with checks coming from everywhere. It's magic. It's not. It's not magic. Neither is this. Let me give you two possible ways that you can get on track to being able to put those loves in order in your life. To being able to give up the things that you love for things you love even more. Number one, you're going to have to figure this out. Finding, you're going to have to learn how to, number one, find contentment without further consumption. You are going to have to figure out that even though the world tells you the reason you feel so empty is because you don't have enough, that that is a lie from the pit of hell, and that no matter how much you have, whatever contentment it delivers you is fleeting at best, and it will ultimately spoil and sour. You will never be able to live the fully optimized life that Jesus has for you if you're constantly satisfying every craving you have with consuming, buying more, having more, getting more, going higher, more love, more sex, more stuff, more things, more education, more houses, more vacations, more spending, more eating out, more shoes, more closets to fit your more shoes. More shelves to put in your more closets to hold your more shoes. Paul discovered this. This is what he's letting us in on. This is the secret. Paul figured this secret out, you see. Philippians 4, we just read it. I'll read it to you again. What does Paul say? 
he says in verse 11, not that I've ever been in need. Well, he's been in need. Joker's in prison, starving, alone, penniless, writing for support, for company, for help. And he says, no, that's not really need. He says, I've learned how to be what? What's the next word? Content. I've learned how to be content. Have you learned how to be content? Have you learned how to be permanently content? Have you found something that will never slip through your fingers that you can't lose, that you won't have to bury, that won't fade or spoil or get rusty or need a new muffler, that you don't have to pay taxes on? Have you found anything that you can hold in your grasp forever and ever and ever that will deliver to you contentment, fulfillment, happiness, let's call it it, that delivers it to you permanently? Have you found that? Have you learned how to be content? I would argue strongly that every single human being on the face of the earth is searching for something that gives them it. And they think That it comes inherently with all these other things we're chasing. If I only made $10,000 a year more and could do this, I'll have it. If I only had love, if I was only married again or married to a different person, I'll have it. If I only could just get over this hump in my job, if I could just get this promotion, if I could get this lateral move, I'll have it. If I can only get to $3 million in my IRA so that I can draw 5% interest on it in perpetuity, I will have it. I will be at peace. And what you find, if you haven't woken up to it already, I'll tell you what you'll find, that none of those things will deliver it to you. Maybe not right away, but at some point you'll figure out, even though I have it, I'm still the same. Paul says, I've learned how to find it, whether my belly is full or empty. Because even when my belly is full, I've learned I can have it. And even three hours later when it's empty, I still have it. Because what I consume does not deliver contentment, so it shouldn't determine contentment. If I have a lot of money, Paul says, I've learned I can still have it. I can be content. I can be fulfilled. My soul can be permanently satisfied. And when I have nothing and no money to my name, I've also learned that I don't forfeit it. In other words, if I get more money, it's not bringing me it. And if I lose money, it's not bringing me it. So why do I always look at my life and let the world tell me that it only comes to me if I have these other things? And if I don't have these things, I don't have it. You don't let consumption have permission to tell you whether or not you can be content. And I'm not just talking about if you have the worst of marriages and you're saying, I wish I had it. I'm talking about even if you have the best of marriages. Even if you have the best of marriages, if you live long enough, you'll outlive your spouse. Some of you have done this. And you learn that as good as it is, there will come a time where it will end. One way, shape, or form or another. And if that's the only place you can get it from, that's intolerable. Are you saying we shouldn't get married? The glass is half full? No, 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 no. 
I'm just telling you, if you look at all the beauty of life, all the health of life, all the wealth of life, all of the relationships of life, and you say those are the only sources of it, the only sources of contentment, you'll find very quickly that it'll slip through your fingers. It'll disappoint you. It'll make you more bitter. It'll make you even more unhappy the older that you get. Because you assume that if you just had all of these things, then then finally you'd be content only to get there and see that you're not. And what you find is that deep down in your innermost desires, you will find that there is a desire in you to have something you can hold forever and ever and ever that will satisfy you completely, that you can never lose. And you will quickly find this world will not offer that to you in any way, shape, or form. And you will quickly find I am built to crave something that cannot be found in this world. What do I do with that? What do I do with the reality when I recognize that I desire it and I've looked everywhere in the earth and I can't find it? You come to one of two conclusions. Either it doesn't exist or that you were not made for this world. You were made for a different world where it does exist and where it is available and where you can have it and you can never lose it. And no one can take it from you. And if you have it, you are free to enjoy everything here on this earth. Because even if it spoils, sours, or changes, you don't lose it. You still have it. This is what Paul discovered. Paul discovered that the solution for me living with contentment, for me to being able to say that's enough, is that I've recognized that no matter how much I have, I won't, it won't deliver me contentment. He's had wealth. He's had poverty. He's ping-ponged back and forth. He's been able to eat wherever he wants and he's gone hungry. And he says, I've been able to have it in both of those extremes. There's not one better than the other. He just recognizes that I don't put the pressure on those things to tell me whether I can be content or not. Who told you you have to have more than your two-bedroom apartment to be content? Who told you you needed how many watches, how many pairs of shoes, to be content. Who told you you always had to have new cars every five years to be successful or happy? Who told you that? What are their names? Society. Of course. Consumerism tells us that the best way to indicate how healthy you are is by how much you have, spend, and own. And I'll tell you, there is a measure of pleasure that you get from having those things. When you get that shiny new car, as opposed to your old whatever you were driving, there is a sense of pleasure there, right? There's a sense of satisfaction there. There's a sense of happiness there, a sense of fulfillment there. People looking at your car, they go, oh, man, look at that thing. Can I see the inside? Go, oh, yeah, it's my car. You know, yeah, I've made it. I've made it, man. I hit the high times. I'm somebody. Now, a year in, it's got some scratches and some dings and some dents. It doesn't look as nice. People aren't turning heads when you come in. Still works, still serves its function. You still got four more years of payments. And you've learned it starts to spoil soon after you got it. May not disappoint you right away, but that it wears off. You take a week-long vacation, and I'll move on, I've got to close. You take a week-long vacation, this is me, okay? You take a week, I love vacation. I just, I just put it out there, I love vacation. We have to plan well in advance for vacation around my house. We budget throughout the year, and we don't take vacations outside of our budget, but we budget for vacations. So when we go, we don't have to stress about how we're going to pay for the vacation when we got home. 
You know, we make little sacrifices every month, put the money away, and then we go on vacation. And I have these moments on vacation sometimes, like on a seven-day vacation. It takes me about two days to decompress and get in vacation mode. And about the third and a half day when I'm finally there and the weather is perfect and you're at the pool or, you know, for me, I'm, I'm in a chair by the ocean and the boys are both asleep and not bothering us. And, the, you know, you've got, you've got my iced tea over here and a good book over here and my sunglasses on and my bald head is tanned, not burned. And it's great. This little thought creeps in and I'm like, life is perfect. And then I think, ooh, I'm at the halfway point. Vacation and my perfectness is slowly slipping away. And this depression comes over me. And I spend the next three and a half days mourning the loss of my vacation. <laughs> what am I saying? Yeah, it is terrible. I need help for that. Um, help is more vacation. Um, here's the reality. If I'm only looking to that for it, as best as it can deliver me is about one and a half days of it. And then it spoils because I recognize it's slipping away from me. And I desire... Wallace Stevens says this. I need to read his quote because it's very succinct. In contentment, I still feel the need for imperishable bliss. In contentment, while I'm feeling contentment on the beach, immediately I recognize, but I still need something that's imperishable to make me content. Because this is slipping away and if only... I can spend my rides home for vacation plotting and planning. How can I accelerate our savings plan that one day our reality can be on the beach every day? You know what I'm doing? I'm saying, if I can only get there, then I'll have it. What if I never get there? What if I do get there? It'll be great, but it still won't be it. It'll be perishing. Because at that point, will I be healthy enough to enjoy it? I don't know. You see, when you start to recognize this, and you recognize that the only treasure I can't lose is Jesus, it frees you up. Frees you up. So much more to say, and I'm totally out of time. Um, skip that, skip that. Two tests, the gain of all oh, that's good stuff. I can't, okay, forget it. Um, I'll just have to go to the end. Man, I'm going to have to do like Monday and Tuesday leftovers this week. I got, here's the problem with me. There's many. Now, that would be 45 minutes right there. That'll be Wednesday's leftovers. Here's the problem with me. Episode one of ten. Um, I'm in this season of my life that I don't ever want to end where I, God is wrecking my priority system. And I've made major changes in my convictions in probably the last six to eight weeks. I have become totally content with the house I live in, with the condition that it's in, with the cars that I drive, with the rate that I'm able to save or not save for our future. And my heart is... Be- it's releasing my heart to say, how can I leverage the rest of my life to give the most that I can to make the most change for the kingdom that I possibly can? And I'm having a hard time staying connected to the material world of relationships and people right now. I feel so drawn deeper into God's presence in prayer and intercession and Bible study. I'm losing irresponsible amounts of time in this. And I'm trying to reconcile. I feel like God is saying so much to me and the problem with that is that my manuscripts for these sermons become, like I have this binder with like 30 pages and it. it's just unfair and reckless to you to make you be like, have to sit in front of this and, and I need to f- figure out what to do with all of it. So that's kind of one of my problems right now is I feel like God is saying so much in my heart and I feel like there's something he's doing in me that needs to be an example for us. 
So I'm figuring, what are you doing in my life, and how do I then package that in a way that's it's attractive and it makes sense, it's aligned biblically? Because I think what would happen in a congregation, even if 200, where even half of us got a handle on this idea of, I have everything I need in Christ, and everything else in me is expendable if God needs it. I can have it and enjoy it, but it doesn't have me. I can have wealth, but it doesn't have me. I can have poverty, it doesn't have me. It frees me up to be able to say, there's all these other things I could chase after, but they're only going to deliver me a short shot in the arm. What can I do with my life, my talent, my energy, my gifts, my money, if I could free up more of my heart to release more of those things to see more stuff happen? Like, wow, what, could God, what would happen if that happened? Here's, here's how I'll wrap it up. Worship team, you can come back because that'll make me stop. I, I so got nowhere in this message today. I hope there was something. I hope something of this made sense. Um, John chapter 6. Here's what Paul figured out. He didn't figure it out because he was in the little huddle that Jesus is talking to here. He figured this out through the Holy Spirit teaching in his life. Paul said, I figured out how I can live by saying that's enough. I just have to recognize that what really fills my belly is a different kind of food than what I typically fill my belly with. Here's what Jesus says. I'm going to try and see if I can see it. Jesus says this in John chapter 6, verse 25. When they found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus says, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves of bread and you had your fill. Now listen to him here. Listen, listen, listen. Don't work for food that spoils but work for food that endures to eternal life that the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they said, what do we have to do to do the works God requires? Jesus says, the work of God is this, believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign will you give that we can see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna, the bread that spoiled, in the wilderness, As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus says, verily I tell you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven. It's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to this world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Break it down for you real quick. The New Testament talks a lot about bread because bread was the staple of the Jewish diet. Meat was only for the really rich folks. Bread was what kept you energized and kept you going. Jesus looks at his disciples and those gathered around him. He says, don't work for bread that spoils. It'll satisfy you, but it's only short term. And even for it to satisfy you, you have to cut down wheat. You have to kill the wheat. You have to put it under fire. You have to bake it. Then you have to break it in a small piece. You have to eat it. You have to consume it. You have to digest it. And it will give you a boost for a while. But ultimately, the bread spoils and whatever benefit it gives you runs out and you need to go back to it again. He says, don't spend life working for bread that spoils. And they're thinking he's talking literally about bread. And they say, where can we get this? And he says, I'm the bread of life. And they say, then always give us this bread. Here's what Paul figured out. Get this right. Everything God made, with the exception of salt or a few minerals, has to die in order for it to give you life. 
everything you eat, the lettuce has to die, the tomatoes have to die, the wheat has to die, the meat has to die. Except for salt and a few minerals. Every, the way God designed creation is the only way you can live if something else gives its life for you that you can consume it. But nothing that you and I consume in the form of food will fill us forever. When Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life, here's what he's saying. You have a desire to eat something that will make you content and satiated for the rest of your life that you can never lose. And nothing on this earth will do it for you. He said, but I am the bread of life. I will die for you to live. I will offer myself and give myself to be cut down and slaughtered. I will allow myself to be broken into digestible pieces in order that you can consume me. And then you'll have it. You'll be permanently satisfied. You'll be permanently content. See, Christianity not only tells you what you can't live without, it offers it to you. Christianity says there's no human being that can live without contentment. And you won't find it in this world, but, but Christianity offers it to you in the form of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. Because through Christ, I have everything. Whether my belly's full or empty, I have Christ. Whether I'm rich or poor, I have Christ. Lots of shoes, little shoes. Much education, little education. Top of the world, bottom of the world. I have Christ. I have it. And that is enough. And if that is enough, I can live by putting that enough fences up around my whole life because I don't need those things to have it. It frees me up. It frees me up. Friend, do you want to be free this morning? Come to the table of Christ and eat of that bread. Let me pray over you as the worship team plays softly. If you're watching on Facebook, if you're here in our auditorium, if you're listening on a podcast, Christ is speaking to you right now. He's drawing you to him. It's not a coincidence you made it this far into the message. He's saying, I see the fact that even though you have much or little, you're missing something. And you know it and I know it. And you think you're going to find it in a different relationship and you know that's not true and I know that's not true. You think you're going to find it with more money and you know that's not true and I know that's not true. And you think you're going to find it with a better house or more well-behaved children or a different wardrobe, a newer car, better vacations, a better retirement plan. You and I both know that won't deliver the it that you're missing. The good news is that the it has left heaven and come to earth for you. He has died for you to be able to take him in. And if you take him in, he offers you everything. He offers you contentment that wealth can't rob you of and poverty can't snatch. He offers you contentment that a good marriage or a bad marriage won't interrupt for you. He offers you healing and hope and wellness that don't decline with age. He offers it to you. The cost is simply the surrender. You just have to, ABC, admit you're a sinner, believe in Jesus, and, conf- and choose his ultimate lordship in your life. And if you want to receive Christ today, here's all you need to do. You join me in this prayer that says, Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe that you are the son of God who took my place on the cross. You paid my debt. You satisfied it in full and you've provided for the forgiveness of my sins and I choose now to surrender absolute control of my life to you. I forfeit all my rights and I take on the pleasures of your system, of your person, of your character. 
and I choose a life of obedience to you. I give up permission to be my own king. And I take on the role of being a servant with you as the king. Thank you for forgiving me. I receive you into me. I receive contentment. I receive satisfaction. I receive power. I receive self-discipline. I receive all access to everything in the kingdom of heaven. In your mighty name, I pray, amen. And all across this church, Lord, we lift our hearts up to you. We want to be deeply satisfied. We are sorry and we are aware that we regularly seek for it in the wrong places and we recognize it might not be that we're chasing after things we shouldn't love. We're chasing them in the wrong order because we think they will deliver to us something only you can. We release those things of the pressure we put on them to be our savior, to be our contentment, to be our satisfaction. And we turn to you again and say, God, you satisfy us. You complete us. Jesus, you're the only treasure I can have that the world can't take from me. You're the only thing I have that I won't lose. And if I have you, Lord, I can safely enjoy anything that in this beautiful world you've given to us because it will never try to occupy the space that you alone fill. I can enjoy marriage, parenting, friendships, wealth, middle class, poverty. I can live in togetherness or aloneness. I can have much or a little or a medium amount. And I can still have a sense of contentment because in you and through you, I have everything and I am something. 